BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. After rising for decades, life expectancy in America is not going up, and for many groups of Americans, it's going down. Viewed from outside the United States, it's quite shocking. A recent Financial Times column by John Byrne Murdoch demonstrated that the average American will likely live as long as a British person from the poorest, least resourced city in Britain. And it's not hard to see this as a sign of societal, not personal illness. Something is wrong in the United States, and it's literally killing us earlier than people in very similar countries. We dig into why with public health experts. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the population health of the United States. This is a really remarkable story, and it's pretty bad. Unlike many other industrialized, rich nations, our country's overall health is declining despite huge health care outlays and despite our overall wealth as a country. Maybe Americans living less long doesn't seem like earth-shattering news, But considering the country as a whole, these changes point to massive societal dysfunction. Like that's when you see the kind of life expectancy declines we've been seeing in the U.S. over the last decade. Here to kick off our discussion, we've got Financial Times columnist John Byrne Murdoch, who's one of the data analysts at the paper, and he recently ran some of these comparisons to the United States with places in Great Britain. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Thanks for having me, Alexis. So writing for a British paper, I mean, what seemed worth digging into about American life expectancy? Like, why'd you get interested in this? Uh, look, I think um, the, the U.S., you know, plays, it's, it's, a, it's, it, it's, it has an outsized role, shall we say, in sort of global, the global media. So as, even as someone in the U.K., I'm sort of constantly aware of, of what's going on in the U.S. And the, the U.S. life expectancy issue is always something that... Um, comes up from time to time. And, and obviously this was especially the case in COVID when life expectancy fell further and faster in the US than elsewhere. But the, the big question for me was, well, what if we compare the US to the UK? And it's it's been more and more apparent over the last few years that the US is now considerably richer than Britain. And so looking at that, you would think, well, surely the life expectancy gap then has has narrowed. And if, if the average American is now this, this much richer than the average Brit, 
surely they must be living longer and healthier lives. And so it was it was with that assumption um, that I went in and looked at the data and saw that not only was that not the case, but it was, it was dramatically not the case. And that gap is, has actually been widened. Hmm. And, you know, one of the most fascinating pieces of analysis is you kind of went through and you broke down kind of individual districts like within the UK um, and kind of laid them all out alongside um, different American, uh, you know, the average American as well as like different American places. Like, what did you find when you did that kind of analysis? Yeah, so this was an interesting one. And there were a couple of stats, statistics in this piece that just, you know, um, stopped me in my tracks as I calculated them. I really had to go back and double check because I was amazed at, at what I was seeing. So the one you're talking about here, there's there's a, a small coastal town uh, in the UK called Blackpool, which over the last 10 years has really become almost sort of notorious for being an emblem of, of socioeconomic decline. It has high rates of um, drug usage, for example, of um, antidepressants, um, very high rates of unemployment, that kind of thing. And it has by far the lowest life expectancy in England. Mm. And so I, I was going through the statistics and I saw this really, really striking stat that when you use what's called the healthy life expectancy or health adjusted life expectancy, that is the number of years someone can expect to live in good health. Mm. The figure for Blackpool, which as I say, is by far the worst in England, was actually the same as the figure for the entire average for the, for the entire US. Mm. So that's, you know, the, the average person born in the United States in 2021, 2022, has the same chance of living a long and healthy life as someone in the most deprived part of the entire, um, the entirety of England. Well, and I mean, I would imagine that the average American, by these financial measures, just has way more resources than the average than the person in Blackpool. Exactly. I mean, even even if you compare the average of England and Wales to the average in the US. Yeah, that American household in the middle is going to be about 60% better off than the average um, in England and Wales. But with Blackpool, yeah, it would be even more so, maybe more like twice as well off, and yet you've got the same life experience. Hmm. So maybe pausing for one minute just to acknowledge how messed up it is that we accept it. Given that income and health are correlated, but take, given, given that assumption and most of the literature around this, in general you know, we see this link between life expectancy and financial resources. So what do you think has really weakened that link in the United States? For me, this is really about um, just sort of reframing the entire the entire discussion about life expectancy, because I think it's, it's completely, um, it makes perfect sense that when we talk about life expectancy, we think about health, right? And, and if you hear a number like um, 65, 75, 85 years old, you're typically thinking two things. One, you're thinking about older people with um, various illnesses. And two, you're thinking about people who might be dying around that age. So if you hear that there's, let's say there's a five-year life expectancy gap between the US and the UK, then maybe you think, okay, that means the average American is dying five years earlier. But what, what we're actually seeing when you dig deeper is this is about death from what we call external causes. So that's from guns, from drugs, um, from road vehicles, that kind of thing. And it's about deaths at young ages. So what's not happening is all Americans are dying five years earlier than Brits on average. What is happening is a lot of Americans are dying at age at 20, at 30, at 40 years old, which is just not happening in Britain, in France, in Germany, in these other countries. And so when you think about it like that, I think it makes a little bit more sense because we're not saying that 
the US is spending all this money in healthcare and somehow it's not having any impact on people's health. We're saying these deaths that occur at young ages almost happen completely independently of the healthcare system. When, mm. when someone is shot, when someone has a overdose on fentanyl, it's not that they're not receiving medical care, it's that medical care is it's too late at that point. So these for me are deaths due to social issues rather than to health issues. Mm. And you kind of laid out the three categories that you can really see in the data, right? Which was basically opioid overdoses, gun violence, and basically car deaths, right? Exactly, yeah. So uh, car deaths may be, as, as you hinted there, it may be a slightly more surprising one. Um, but yeah, the, the, the rate at which people die from, um, from, in, from incidents involving cars in the US is much, much, much higher. Than, than in other developed countries, especially the UK. And some people, they, they hear that statistic and they think, well, isn't that just because Americans drive more? And I think there's, there's two things I would say to that. One is that, you know, to the person who loses their life, that, that caveat isn't really very helpful. Like, of course, it's true, Americans do drive more, it's a larger country and people simply drive more regardless. But if we're t- thinking about the chances of someone being killed in any given year, that's not really much of a consolation. But the second thing is that even if you adjust for how much people are driving, the rates of um, road deaths per mile traveled are still several times higher in the US than other countries. And, and, some, and one of the reasons for that that really surprised me is that the, the percentage of drivers and, and front seat passengers in the US who don't wear a seatbelt is, again, several times higher what we see in other countries. So it's just that much more dangerous if there is any collision. It's also wild, too, because in general thanks to sort of consumer safety movements and things like cars themselves have gotten safer over the years. So it means that there's kind of something else going on aside from just kind of trying to technically fix the cars to be safer. Exactly. And, you know, there's, there's, there's several things there. One is, as I'm sure some of your listeners will be aware that Americans do tend to drive considerably larger and heavier cars on average than people in uh, Western Europe, for example. And that means the, the sort of kinetic energy involved in any crash is higher, which means it can be more lethal. And, and also some of these vehicles are simply higher off the road, which means they impact pedestrians at a, at a more sort of lethal point on the body. So, so yeah, even whether it's, whether it's guns, opioids, or indeed road deaths, America is just much more, a much more lethal place to live, especially, again, for those young adults. We're talking about how U.S. life expectancy compares with other developed countries and the problems, really, that we've had in the last decade here in the United States. We're joined first by John Byrne Murdoch, columnist with the Financial Times, and we'd love to invite your thoughts on this. What can the United States do to help more people live longer, healthier lives? No, we're not asking what can individual people do to live longer, healthier lives, but what can the United States do to help more people live longer, healthier lives? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email comments, questions, thoughts on this to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. You know, one of the things I think that people sometimes argue when they see United States life expectancy numbers is they say, well, if you control for race and sort of leaving aside whether we should do that, quote unquote, control for race, like you don't think that that fully kind of closes the gap. That's right. And I think there's there's a couple of things I point to here. So one is that when you look at the, the very small areas, if you go down to like the census tract level in the US and look at the where these places are and the characteristics of the people who live in these areas that are that have the shortest life expectancy, 
some of these areas, it's true, have relatively high black populations, for example. Some have relatively high populations of indigenous Americans, but many of them, they are overwhelmingly populated by the white working class. And, you know, that's not to say that any of those individual groups um, is, is more or less significant than the other, but that this really does um, take place sort of across the, the racial spectrum. And some of your listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with this concept of deaths of despair. So these are people who, for whatever reason, feel that their life is, is not going in a good direction, and they end up being much more vulnerable to things like deaths from mm. suicide, from drugs, um, from alcohol, and that kind of thing. And that, again, is something that very much occurs across the racial spectrum. But, mm. but another thing here that I think is actually is really, really significant, and I think not widely appreciated, is that... In the US, um, if you look at life expectancy for different racial groups, life expectancy for black Americans and for indig indigenous Americans is some years shorter than for, for white Americans. Now, that, I think, is widely understood. That's not a surprising statistic to hear. But in the UK, life expectancy for black British people is higher than it is for white British people. And I think that's just that's just really, really significant because to my mind, what that is telling us is that there is nothing innate about being a member of a specific racial group that says one's life expectancy should be lower. But for some reason, the experience of being black in America is that much more lethal than it is in a country like the UK, for example. So when people say, oh, well, look, you know, if, if Britain had the same racial demographics as the US, then I'm sure you'd see a similar similar performance for life expectancy that not only is that not true it's actually the opposite and that if britain had um more black people for example britain's life expectancy would be higher would go up that's so interesting we're talking about how u.s life expectancy compares with other developed countries and recent trends in this statistic which are really worrying John Byrne Murdoch, a columnist with the Financial Times, has kicked off this discussion. He's got some really two fascinating columns on this topic. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, John. Thanks very much for having me. Great conversation. We'll be talking more about life expectancy for the rest of the show. I think you're going to find this really interesting. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about U.S. life expectancy and how that has changed and the worrying trends of the last 
couple of decades, in particular the last one. Earlier, we were joined by John Byrne, Murdoch, columnist of the Financial Times, who set us up. And I want to add two other voices to our conversation, talk about kind of the whys of these changes in life expectancy. First up, we've got Tony Eiten. He's Senior Vice President of Healthy Communities at the California Endowment. He's a lecturer in health policy and management at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. He's also former director of Alameda County Public Health Department. Welcome, Tony. Uh, Morning, Alexis. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so good to talk with you. We're also joined by Jessica Y. Ho, Associate Professor of Sociology and Demography at Penn State. Welcome. Hi, great to be here. I want to go right to the phones, and then we're going to direct this question to you. I think it's a really great point from Lily in San Jose. Welcome. Hi, Alexis. So the reason I'm calling in is because I feel like the unspoken like factor in cutting down life expectancy in America is mostly about stress. Um, in my own personal experience, I'm an entry-level worker. And in the last several months alone, I've experienced so many health scares, so many panic attacks. It's a very new environment that a lot of entry-level, first-year-time workers are facing. And these days, it feels like seniority is being given the stronger emphasis rather than providing the proper resources to new people that are entering the workforce. So interesting, Lily. Um, Tony, do you want to talk about the relationship between stress and you know, sort of population health and how we even think about trying to measure something like that? Yeah, uh, Lily has put her finger right on what we think is the major driver of the essentially the poor health status of Americans, and that is that we create unnecessary stress in people's lives. And that stress essentially shortens their lives in in a variety of different ways. Um, the scientific concept behind stress is is referred to as allostatic load or allostasis. And in essence, what we think is happening is that through the absence of affirmative policy, we create essentially stress incubators across this country. Uh, that tend to concentrate in in low-income communities, but uh, drive stress across the entire economic spectrum. So I think Lily's exactly right. And, um, you know, related to that is what we know about what relieves stress in people's lives. And what relieves stress is essentially having control over resources. Mm -hmm. And so something like the absence of universal health care, the absence of universal childcare, the absence of paid sick leave. These are policies that virtually other every other Western developed country has put in place, and, and not just recently, since World War II. And the United States has not. And that creates unnecessary, what I refer to as policy-mediated stress in the lives of millions of Americans. And it shortens our lives across the economic spectrum. Yeah. You know, Jessica, I was wondering if you could talk about why life expectancy is sort of an interesting statistic for measuring kind of the health of a society. Sure, I'd be happy to. In some ways, you know, death is the ultimate outcome. Everyone wants to live really long, healthy lives. And the fact that life expectancy in the United States is so much lower than other countries is, you know, a huge warning sign. Is it? Also, you know, it's so difficult to isolate all the different variables. Like when we've already in this show, we've talked about so many of the different things that lead up to the population health of the United States declining a little bit. 
Um, although that that little bit means a lot in terms of the quality of life for you know hundreds of millions of people. So is it that it also allows us to kind of capture a bunch of the stuff that's difficult to isolate on its own? Yes, that's absolutely right. There are a lot of interaction effects among different causes of death. So what you really get is a nice summary measure in life expectancy that captures everything going on with um, preventable deaths, external causes, chronic diseases, um, all of these things. Yeah. You know, Tony, I've tended to think about this issue largely about, you know, kind of racial and, and economic depression and people being hurt by American society in ways that take years off their lives. You know, John Byrne Murdoch noted something in the statistics that I think is really interesting, which is just that, you know, it's this is kind of true across all income levels that Americans are living less long than, say, our counterparts uh, in Britain. Yeah, I, I really appreciated John's um, perspective on this um, because it's something that's frequently missed. And it's been documented. It's well documented. Michael Marmot and and uh, his colleagues documented this in 2006 that in terms of chronic disease rates, diabetes, heart disease, uh, wealthy white Americans have disease rates that are basically on par with low income Britons. Um, this is this has been known for a while. The National Bureau of Economic Research has shown that you know essentially. Um, life expectancy rates for wealthy Americans, w- wealthy white Americans, are basically on par with low-income Europeans. Hmm. So the impact of of our policies, or I like to say the absence of affirmative policy, uh, has consequences across the economic spectrum, and that's largely not well understood in the United States. Yeah. You know, Jessica, maybe you can walk us through a little bit of, like, from your position, like, how much has changed, say, like, in the last decade in the United States? Like, we know that a lot of these things are long-term trends, but what, what's kind of new for you, from your perspective? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, to pick up on those long-term trends first, this is something that's been in development for decades. If we look back in the 1950s, the U.S. was actually around the middle of the pack in terms of life expectancy. We weren't at the top, but we did about average. Ever since the 1980s, we fall into the bottom of the pack and are we have lower life expectancy than all of our peer countries in Europe, in countries like Japan, Canada, and Australia. Over the past decade, what's really troubling is that this has been an extremely challenging decade for American life expectancy. It's the worst on record. We've made the smallest gains on life expectancy um, basically in modern history. And what's happened is there's now a large gap opening up between our life expectancy levels and life expectancy in our peer countries. They're leaving us in the dust because life expectancy is continuing to improve in those countries, whereas we've stalled to a standstill. Hmm. You know, Tony, I think a lot of people, their minds might go immediately to like, oh, well, healthcare. But I know your perspective is that it's much broader than that, right? We're talking health, not healthcare. Yeah, the... um... It's a, it's a sort of interesting issue because we talk about universal health care, and oftentimes I, I I try to help people understand that the concept of universal health care is actually important for the universal side of it, and less so for the healthcare side of it. Healthcare is uh, is basically responsible for about ten percent of the differences you see in health status. It's a relatively small contributor. 
it's real and it's urgent. It's not something that you can ignore. But the drivers of our poor health status occur well before people enter the healthcare system, oftentimes multiple decades before they even encounter the healthcare system. And the drivers are structural drivers. They're related to policy, policy that is, quote unquote, man-made and can be unmade. We have just chosen not to invest in affirmative policy. Hmm. So healthcare is uh, is is necessary, but it's absolutely not sufficient to actually close the gap in health status between the United States and other countries around the world. Let's bring in a call here, Ashley in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Uh, so my frustration, and no, I'm a dietitian, so I'm very passionate about this, but you know, there was a call a few weeks ago about how much Newsom is investing and getting generic insulin for the state of California. And the whole time I was so frustrated because nobody was talking about educating our children on good health, good eating habits, good exercise. And I just think that we that's where we could have the biggest impact as a dietitian, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm very interested in this. I mean, Tony, like how much can we do via education versus some other roots of, you know, community empowerment? Well, I think education matters. I I used to run a public health department. I used to run the Alameda County Public Health Department, and and we invested a lot of effort in the schools in not only trying to educate young people about nutrition, but trying to expose them to environments in which they understood more about how food is produced and essentially what healthy food looks like with, you know, with, uh, you know, school gardens and, you know, exposures to various different types of farmers markets and the like. And that made a difference. It made a difference in people's choices, et cetera. But I think there are larger structural issues about our food system that you can't ignore. Uh, So there's no silver bullet in this in this equation. You have to think about the fact that we essentially create we use food as a commodity. It's it's not essentially viewed as a, an essential resource. And we allow corporations to market very unhealthy foods at children. We routinely do this. Other countries don't allow this. And we have to question, why do we allow this? Why do we allow the sugary cereals and and the and the sodas to be aggressively marketed at vulnerable populations and even targeted uh, at specific racial groups? We sit by, sit back and allow this to happen on a, on a routine basis because we have this mindset of hyper-individualism that doesn't really balance the need uh, for protecting young people and investing in, in community-wide prevention strategies. Let's bring in another call. Let's go to uh, Philip in Burlingame. Welcome, Philip. Hi. Um, you know, seven in 10 Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, my mom, when I grew up, you know, had to do that. And the stresses of that are unbearable. Um, If you take a look at Britain and other, you know, Western European nations, it doesn't work that way, nor does it work that way in Japan. And it's not even just that. If you look at the highest suicide rates by gun, it's men over white men over 55 uh, hitting into economic troubles. And I think those two things are driving um, at least three quarters of of the problems that you guys are talking about. I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah. 
just this, you know, um, economic insecurity tied in with stress, tied in with guns. Um, Jessica, uh, uh, how, how would you, you know, think about how we could, like, pull apart the problems that Philip was describing? You know, I agree with a lot of the factors that have been said. Basically, life in the United States is in some ways very risky and precarious, and we don't have very strong social safety nets. We also do allow a lot of corporate influence. So in addition to, you know, the unhealthy foods that Tony mentioned, we have rampant uh, pharmaceutical advertising, which kicked off our contemporary drug overdose epidemic. In a sense, we have these very, you know, environments that are not health promoting. We have a lot of people um, having widespread access to guns, um, consuming a lot of unhealthy foods, perhaps too many of certain types of drugs and having a lot of access to firearms, all coupled with high levels of concentrated poverty and inequality. Hmm. I mean, do you think inequality in and of itself generates lower life expectancies in, in countries that have high levels of inequality? I think that uh, this is a big open question. I think that there are countries that allow some level of inequality and can achieve acceptable life expectancy outcomes. Uh, what we're seeing in the United States is part of the inequality is really hurting us, but across the socioeconomic spectrum, the poorest Americans are doing really badly, but the richest most educated Americans are also less healthy and live shorter lives than their peers living in other high-income countries. Tony, this is a, a comment coming to you. A listener Matt writes in, I live in a neighborhood with a life expectancy of 74 years. We are multi-ethnic and have diverse economic and educational attainment as well. What we have in common is a proximity to a major East Bay freeway interchange, a lack of parks, walkable schools, dangerous high-speed boulevards, a lack of sidewalks, an abundance of liquor stores, and hazardous bike infrastructure. In short, we're killed by terrible infrastructure and poor urban planning. Yeah. And, you know, the the worst aspect of that is that this is intentional. It's not like we don't know what kinds of health protective resources in an urban environment are good for people's health. We we know it's not news. We know that people need parks. We, we know that people need infrastructure that allows them to walk and bike. We know that they need access to healthy food. We know that they need access to clean air. Yet we routinely, particularly in low-income communities, we routinely cite uh, noxious land uses adjacent to living spaces for low-income people, particularly African-Americans, Native Americans, Latinos, other low-income people, we devalue these communities systematically and intentionally through policy. So it's it's not just sort of chance that this happens. This is the result of a, a long legacy of policies, notably redlining and segregation, um, and contemporary neglect. <clears throat> you know, when you were Alameda County health officer, your department put out a pretty incredible report called Unnatural Causes that was about, you know, declines in life expectancy and the inequities between different neighborhoods. What have you seen anything begin to change in people's understanding of how much like a zip code, the zip code you're born in affects, you know, how long you're you're likely to live? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, what's wonderful in California is that uh, this information has been acted upon. And there's a much greater awareness of the fact that the structural inequities are the product of policy. And so we've seen California make real efforts to rebuild our social contract and specifically um, trying to get universal policies in place. So universal paid sick leave, universal health care, efforts around child care. There's a policy response to what we know are a set of conditions that are injurious to people's health. I don't think that's the case across the rest of the United States, and certainly California has a long way to go. We have uh, housing policies that are struggling to essentially create meaningful conditions in people's lives that allow them to pursue opportunity without having to contend with just ridiculous rents and costs of living that create enormous stress and and homelessness. Um, but California has definitely made strides. I think that it's it's important to understand that this is what equity means. It means a, a, about investing in the kinds of resources that we know all communities need in order to be healthy and, and not just sort of shrugging your shoulders and saying, you know, say la vie, this is the way things shake out. It is not the way things shake out. This was the product of intentional policy and practice that was driven by racism and other forms of discrimination to injure the health and opportunities of people that were essentially devalued. Um, Jessica, Renee writes in to say, I'm curious, what's in the, basically, what's the life expectancy in the U.S. state by state? And is there a difference between red and blue states? Um. So there are very large differences um, between in life expectancy between states in the United States and also between counties. Uh, generally, the worst performing country, states are located in the south, the south, southeastern United States, particularly around Appalachia, which has been really hard hit by the drug overdose epidemic. The states that do the best tend to be located on the West Coast um, and Hawaii, also a few states along the northeast. Um, yeah, but does it? I, well, well, let's come back to the question of whether there is a political geography that you just described there. Uh, but we will we'll come back to it. We're talking about U.S. life expectancy and the worrying trends of the last decade with Jessica Ho, associate professor of sociology and demography at the Pennsylvania State University, and Tony Iden, senior vice president of healthy communities at the California Endowment. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the worrying trends in U.S. life expectancy, both in communities that have very little money and very few resources, as well as those that, that have a lot. We're joined by Tony Eitan, Senior Vice President of Healthy Communities at the California Endowment, also a lecturer in health policy and management at UC Berkeley School of Public Health and a former director of the uh, Public Health Department in Alameda County. Also joined by Jessica Ho, Associate Professor of Sociology and Demography at Penn State. And earlier we were joined by John Byrne Murdoch, a columnist with the Financial Times. So one of our listeners wrote in with a with an intense story, and I think it's just worth to to make this a little bit less abstract. So this listener writes, I'm terrified by these statistics. I'm a woman of color, a disabled veteran, with a high adverse childhood experiences score, physical disabilities, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I'm all over these studies that say years are being shaved off my life. Recently, I keep hearing about lower life expectancies for people with high-stress lifestyles, sleep issues, executive dysfunctions, people in poverty. Now hearing about driving being a risk, I feel both validated and constantly under threat. I used to commute two to three hours a day for nearly a decade before multiple accidents made the cost of keeping a vehicle too high for me. I literally just declined a call from debt collectors while typing this. My father died in his 40s in jail in the 90s. In the 2000s, one of my brothers in his early 20s died in a convenience store shootout, and my mother died at 60 from uterine cancer. Of my remaining siblings, one has brain damage from gang violence. The other has intellectual disabilities because of my mother's drug use during pregnancy. I'm only 32, but I feel like I'm running out of time quicker than I should be. How do we fix this? How am I supposed to fix anything from beneath these burdens? The saddest thing is I don't have it as bad as many of my peers. I feel lucky for my circumstances, and it's a shame. You know, Tony, I, I, I know this is an area that you've been really actively engaged with, so maybe you could just respond to, to our listeners' fears as well as you know, I, the structural conditions that she's called attention to. Yeah, Wow. And, and I just want to appreciate um, the candor and, and, and that storytelling. That, that is a story that is unfortunately not uncommon in the United States and even in California and in multiple communities. And I just want to say, first of all, that you're not alone. Uh, there are so many people that are in the same circumstances. The the amount of wear and tear that our society exacts from uh, certain populations um, produces exactly what your listener is describing. Uh, this is this is this is a mean society that that injures people um, through neglect. And the good news is that we have experienced a number of different ways, particularly in California of organizing communities that find themselves similarly situated to hold our institutions and our politics accountable for equity, to reinvest in our social contract and, and rebuild the kind of policy infrastructure that you have in Western Europe and in Canada that, that protects people, it buffers people against the harshness of, of poverty and the harshness of of living in a society where we have abundant resources to go around. So community organizing is happening all throughout California, where communities that essentially are 
made up of people just like your listener uh, are coming together, organizing, uh, taking on the education system, taking on the healthcare system, taking on general uh, land use decision making, taking on at the state level our tax structure, taking on uh, mass incarceration, taking on access to the ballot box, all of these fundamental issues that if we can essentially reweave our social contract and develop the kind of protective policies that we know will lead to improved conditions in communities for all Californians and all Americans, we can do this. And we, that we've, we've done it over and over and over again. And the only way that that has proven to work is when communities come together, recognize that they're not alone, that many people are similarly situated and organize to demand change. Let's uh, bring in Dale in San Leandro. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, just a little background. Um, I have a master's in public health from Berkeley, and I've spent the last 30 years uh, in early childhood education. And one of the things that I have noticed uh, and learned early on about uh, health resiliency is creating community, just like you're, you were just talking about. And I believe creating community can start at a very, very, very early age. Um, and what I used to see when we had cooperative preschools before uh, Governor Brown took that opportunity away from the adult schools that were helping to fund those, I saw families who would join together from a variety of ethnic and economic backgrounds. We had like 12 different languages spoken in our school. We had um, people living in their car. We had people working for tech companies. Um, they came together over a very common denominator, which was the love of their children. And we created a support group. And that support group, over and over and over again, I have watched they stay together, K through 12, and they are bonded together, help each other. When someone's in crisis, they can come to the fore, because these are problems that are not going to be solved overnight, yet we need some type of health solution now. And I really feel that bringing back community, bringing back a way to create healthy support systems that cross social boundaries can be done around um, our children. And then that reaches out to people who don't have children. We would bring in people, neighbors to help. We would bring, it was a beautiful construct that supported yeah. actual physical health. And that's been shown over and over again. You take classes when you're, you know, in public health, that that social component is a huge piece of yeah. how how healthy you feel, you know. And mm -hmm. so you can boost your immune system by just having good social support, never mind the fact that your mental health is better, that if you're sick, somebody's there to bring you meals. We've lost that in this country. I travel to Brazil a lot where my kids live, and they have a lot of hardships in Brazil. But you know what they do have? They have community, and that community crosses all social networks. Thank you so much, Dale. And I think, you know, Tony, I, one of the 
sort of, I guess it's not really a mystery, um, but one of the um, the interesting things about life expectancy in the U.S. is the way that immigrant communities actually tend to live longer than the descendants of those immigrants once they've sort of uh, acculturated to the United States. Yes, and that's exactly what uh, was prompted in my mind when I heard Dale's comments, and I strongly agree with everything Dale said. And we, we saw this particularly during the COVID pandemic. The California Endowment is reputedly the largest funder of community organizing in the country. And we saw during the COVID pandemic how those organizations kind of re reorganized themselves to be able to respond to the acute needs of people in the communities. And they did exactly what Dale was describing. The phenomenon that you're describing, Alexis, I think is the most exciting phenomenon in this whole um, life expectancy thing, which is that you see that the healthiest and longest living people in the state of California are immigrant Latinos. And um, you can actually, if you want to see long living populations in this country, look at any immigrant group, immigrant Asians, immigrant Europeans, immigrant Africans, they all live longer than their American born peers. And the crazy thing is, is as they Americanize and acculturate, their lives get shorter. America is not good for your health. What we do here actually decreases people's health and well-being, despite our rhetoric. So what immigrants do is they form these tight social bonds, similar to what Dale was describing, and they, they help each other. They organize themselves around mutual support. And that is very good for your health. Uh, it's very good for your your sense of, of optimism, well-being, hope, all of which um, impact your health. So that's, in, in, in fact, why we use community organizing, because community organizing is good for you at the individual level, it's good for you at the family level, and it's good for you at the community level. We've documented this in multiple studies. So Dale's description is precisely what I'm talking about. This is the kind of action that in California has changed conditions on the ground for people in low-income communities, for people in middle-income communities, and that those efforts benefit all of us through policy. Jessica, want to bounce this comment from Carol, who writes in to say, there are indeed many policies that negatively impact life expectancy, especially healthcare access, a thin social safety net, under the table redlining, which confines people of color to neighborhoods without good grocery stores, inadequate health, education, and public schools, etc. But I think our personal choices also have an impact. The average American diet is crap, huge portions, tons of sugar, salt, and fat, few vegetables and fruit, way too much red meat, etc. Also, people don't move enough. We're a nation of couch potatoes. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you would think about the balance of those factors and the problems that we've been describing today? Absolutely. You know, I think there is, to some extent, the behavioral component, but also there's a strong interaction with environment. So I think the way for policy to go forward is to create environments where people can make good choices. When, for example, soda is cheaper than water, people will, you know, drink soda instead of water. We can build, uh, invest in public transportation build parks, um, uh, create bike lanes and pedestrian walkways that make it easier for people to be more active and live uh, more physical lifestyles and uh, enforce uh, stronger gun control laws. All of these structural factors can promote 
uh, better personal choices as well. Let's uh, bring in Michael from Oakland. Welcome, Michael. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I wanted to say in response to like things that can be done to improve the U.S.'s number, uh, I guess one silver lining for me is the fact that Narcan is now available over the counter. I think that's phenomenal and hopefully will translate into, even if it's a slight decrease in numbers, but, you know, things getting better. And I think uh, gun control is, is a big thing. You know, we, need, we do need to ban assault weapons. We do need uh, universal background checks. And we do need, like, locked storage for mm-hmm. guns in homes, you know. And I guess lastly, I want to say the overlap for that to me is the fact that recently we had the second death on the highway of an mm-hmm. innocent child from, you know, um, shootings. So it, it's such a critical problem, you know. What happened in Tennessee is just—it's—it. Mm-hmm. It, I think we we really need to have a change, and and it's all about political will, you know. Yeah, you know, Tony. I mean, I think um, we had two things here, which remind me that in this topic, it's so big that there's actually a lot of different handholds, right? I mean, one, like Narcan can bring down the number of opioid overdose deaths, right? I mean, it's not the only thing, but it's like one of many of these uh, different efforts. Yeah, and and uh, I appreciate Michael's input. I mean, it, the, the key to responding to all of these you know, general threats is is to recognize that there are short-term, intermediate-term, and long-term strategies. And in the short term, you want to you want to go after the low-hanging fruit. Nar- making Narcan o- available over the counter is hugely important, and training people in its use, including in schools, unfortunately, uh, where fentanyl is starting to show up. Um, you know, common sense gun control. Um, it's happening in California and it makes a difference. Um, it would be nice. It was happening nationally to close some of the the various loopholes that California can't control. Um, but these are, these are basic things that we can do at the end of the day. However, it, the reason the United States is different from other countries, our true exceptionalism is that we have not, uh, embraced, uh, the concept of shared solidarity. We still treat populations as essentially others, and we stratify people's access to basic resources. And until we can develop shared solidarity across groups, we're not going to be able to to generate the political will to create universal policies. And so the United States is is unique. Our exceptionalism is really in the fact that we don't have universal policies. And there's a reason for that is because we don't see each other as as having our fates inextricably intertwined. We see each other as competitors for what we presume is sort of a scarcity mindset, a limited set of resources, when in fact, the reality is very different. And the longer... Tony, let me throw this one from Jessica at you, just because it's sort of like, it's right, right on this point. I mean, Jessica writes in to say, how much do you think racism in America and as an extension, the political divide between people's identities, Republicans and Democrats, plays into our decrease in life expectancy? For example, the Affordable Care Act, there were so many people who were speaking out and voting against their interests because it was also known as Obamacare, particularly poor white Americans who would have benefited. Is this really the kind of Heather McGee thing of, you know, 
that race in fact makes people make bad decisions about even their own, you know, structural health interests. In in a word, yes. Uh, at the at the end of the day, the uniqueness of America stems from our our history and pernicious legacy of of slavery and genocide. At at the root of all of it is the inability for us to essentially to see our shared humanity because we have this history that we haven't grappled with. And Heather McGee and others, I've written about this. Racism has profound collateral damage. Um, it's targeted at people of color, people who are presumably despised and devalued, but it's it has this sort of boomerang effect and it impacts low-income white people and, and all people uh, through the absence of the kinds of protective policies that countries that have a strong sense of shared solidarity have. So our challenge is essentially to build that sense of solidarity, which we've done in California, by the way. I, I like to tell people when I speak outside of California, I say, hi, I'm Tony. I'm from California. That means I'm from the future. <laughs> what happens in California today will happen to you tomorrow. So we're actually building America's future in California. And that future rests on a platform of strong shared solidarity. Hmm. You know, Jessica Ho, if there's one thing that one change that you could make on a structural level that you think would really help, like what, what would it be? Uh, I'm just going to have to throw a bundle, three quick ones, <laughs> stronger gun control, investing in public transportation and investing in substance abuse treatment. Mm -hmm. Addressing the three things that we were talking about at the top uh, with John Byrne Murdoch. Um, we have been talking about U.S. life expectancy and really the worrying trends here in the United States. We've been joined by Jessica Ho, Associate Professor of Sociology and Demography at Penn State. Thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. Sure, thank you. We've also been joined by Tony Eiten, Senior Vice President of Healthy Communities at the California Endowment. Thank you so much for joining us, Tony. Always a pleasure, Alexis. Earlier, we were joined by John Byrne Murdoch, a columnist with the Financial Times. And as always, so appreciate your calls and comments on this. It's a tough topic. Hopefully, the little optimism laced through this difficult time. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.